I'll be reading from the ESV. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, son of thunder, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Good morning. Good to be with you all. If we haven't met yet, as Pastor Luke said, just said, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. It's good to worship with you today. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Mark, and today we see a shift take place in the book. Up till now, Mark's focus has been on Jesus as the king. He's the one who proclaims that the kingdom of God has come. He's the one who does amazing things to rescue people from both physical and demonic oppression. And today that focus shifts from Jesus, the king who does these things, to the people for whom he does these things. And so in that first section there, you see the crowd take center stage. It's a great crowd that followed him. It's a crowd that comes from all over. They come from Galilee in the northern part of Israel and Judea in the southern part, regions that were predominantly all Jewish. But this crowd also comes from Idumea, which is south, below Judea. And they also come from an area that is the Transjordan region, it's the e to the east of Israel. And these two regions, both south and east, were mixed. They were mixed Jewish and Gentile. There's also people from this crowd who come from up above Israel, from the north, from Tyre and Sidon. And these folks were primarily Gentile. Now, if you plot all of those regions on a map, you'll see that they cover roughly the same size as the nation of Israel did in its heyday, in its golden age, under the reign of King David. And so Mark is giving you a picture here of Jesus, a direct descendant of David, to whom people are coming from all around the, uh, of David's former kingdom. And you realize that Mark has shifted our focus from Jesus the king to the people. Jesus the king to his kingdom. It's a kingdom that holds even greater promise than David's did because David's kingdom was mono-ethnic. They're all Jewish. This kingdom that's gathering around Jesus is much more diverse. It includes the Gentiles as well. And you start to get that sense that this is what Jesus, God was talking about when he first chose the Israelites. When he called them out and he said, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all of the other nations. And here you see that kind of kingdom foreshadowed as Mark shifts our focus from the king to his kingdom. 
Or maybe it would be better to say that you see that potential kingdom foreshadowed. And I'm using that word potential very intentionally because there's something that's not quite right with this crowd. The crowd is not what it should be. What's driving the crowd is verse 8, they've heard what Jesus is doing. Verse 10, that he's been healing, and they want in on that. That's why verse 10, they're pressing in on him. They want in on the healing, but not necessarily do they want in on the healer. They don't seem to care as much about Jesus the person as much as they care about what he can do for them. And so there's a danger that in their desire to get what they want from him, that they might actually, verse 9, crush him. And this is a danger that is so clear to Jesus that he has to take steps to make sure that he has a boat available so that he can back away from them if necessary. In other words, the crowd is not acting like loyal subjects of a king. They're acting more like a mob, a mob that wants what it wants and that's going to press forward to get it, even if that puts Jesus' life in danger. Now, this is clearly not what Jesus had in mind when he came proclaiming the kingdom back in chapter 1, when he called people to repent and believe the good news that God had come to rescue them. And because that's not what he wants, he backs away, goes up on this mountain, moves away from the crowd, and he calls some of the disciples to himself. He calls those who have already been following him because they do want the message that he has for them. They're not following him because he's giving them everything that they want. He takes these disciples and he fashions them into a community, into the beginning of his kingdom. It's no accident that he chooses 12 of them. The vast majority of the times that you come across the number 12 in scripture is when it either directly talks about the 12 tribes of Israel or it references the 12 tribes in some way. Number 12 is almost always associated with the founding of the number of tribes that made up Israel. And so when Jesus selects 12 disciples from among his followers, it's a very intentional signal that he's sending that this is the beginning of the new Israel. This is the start of his kingdom, the start of the kingdom that everyone enters who repents and believes. And in that sense, even though these 12 apostles are unique as the beginning of the kingdom, they do set the pattern for the rest of us who come into the kingdom afterward. And so as we watch Jesus interact with these 12, he tells us some very important things about his kingdom. We'll just look at three of them this morning. But he tells us today about its origins, about how his kingdom comes into being. He tells us its constitution, who makes up his kingdom, and he tells us its purpose, what the kingdom is doing here on earth. He tells us its origin, its constitution, and its purpose. So first, its origin. How does this new kingdom start? It begins, verse 13, with Jesus calling to himself those he desired. That word calling is actually a little weak in this context. In this context, the Greek is stronger. It's more like Jesus summoned those he wanted. That's the origin of the new Israel. It's based on who Jesus wants. It's his kingdom. He's the king. And that means that he doesn't simply order and organize it the way that he wants. He actually calls into it those whom he wants. He summons them into it. And that might be hard for some of us to hear this morning. We're used to living in a democracy where we have some say in where we live, some say in what we agree to while we live there, and that is not the way that a kingdom works. 
We are not being summoned as Christ followers into a democracy. We're being summoned into a kingdom by a king. Now, Jesus is a good king. We've already seen that in the book of Mark. He's a king who comes to live among his people when he doesn't have to. He's a king who comes and teaches us his words, even though he's already given us the scripture. He's a king who uses his power to heal people, who fights against the kingdom of darkness, who does not destroy people who oppose him. He is a good king. But don't make a mistake. He is a king. He decides what he wants. We trust him because we see his character. We see that the things that he wants are good, but it's him who decides not us. He decides who he wants in his kingdom. We are not doing him a favor by entering his kingdom. We're not being offered various incentives that we sit back and we go, you know, well, this sounds like a pretty good deal. I, I think I'm in. Instead, we are responding to his summons. It's a gracious summons. Don't miss that. There's no reason that he should include us, that he should invite us in. We've done nothing to deserve being included but it is a summons, and it's a summons based on his desires, not on ours. It's built on his preferences, not on ours. Not built on our likes and dislikes. It's about his likes and dislikes. And maybe hardest of all, we don't have a say in who else he summons, in who else is part of this kingdom. It's not about who we want to be with, people who we like and respect and, and look up to. It's not about people who like and respect and look up to us. It's not about who we want to be with. It's about who he wants to be with him. So if you're part of his kingdom, it is not because you volunteered. And no one else is part of it because they volunteered. It's because he wanted you in his kingdom and he wanted all the rest of the people who are in his kingdom in his kingdom. In other words, the kingdom, this community that he creates, the community of the king, only has this one origin, this one unilateral starting point, and that is his desire, his call, his summons, which, which creates it. Our part is to what? It's to respond to this summons. By the way, that's how you know that you have been summoned. It is that you respond. You come to him and you enter into his kingdom. And it's really that simple. How do you know if you love Jesus? Because when you hear that summons, you're like, I'm all in. I want to be there and I want to be with the king. I want to be a part of whatever it is that he's doing because he's called me to be part of it. That's point one this morning. That's the origin of his kingdom. That's how it comes to be. Now point two, the constitution of the kingdom. Who is it that makes this kingdom up? What is the composition of this kingdom that our king desires? As you read through that list of names there in verses 16 to 19, the thing that jumps out at you is how radically different they all are from each other. And you can see that difference across multiple dimensions. Let's think occupationally first. Jesus calls together Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, along with James and his brother John, guys who were all fishermen. They're tradesmen. They work a very hard, physically demanding job. And he calls Matthew, who we learn elsewhere, is also named Levi. 
Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew's someone who sits at a desk all day long. And Jesus calls together both of them, people from diverse occupational backgrounds, and he puts them with each other in the same kingdom. Jesus calls people together from diverse occupational backgrounds, and we can also see the difference in politics. As a tax collector, Levi functioned as a representative of the Roman Empire. He was backed by their full might and power to do his job. He was part of the establishment. Simon the Zealot, on the other hand, was aligned with a group of people who wanted to overthrow the establishment. We don't know if he was still an active member or not, but at one point he had been part of the Zealots. The historian Josephus tells us that the Zealots were part of a political party who advocated armed rebellion against Rome. Simon is somebody that today we would call a radical. We might even say that he was radicalized. And Jesus calls the establishment guy and the radical to be together with him in his kingdom. Or let's think about social reputation. Some of the disciples seem to have, had been, seem to have been decent, hardworking, upstanding citizens, but not all of them. Levi again holds down the extreme end here as a tax collector. As a tax collector, he was despised. What did tax collectors do? We learned about this a couple weeks ago. They imposed the tax that Rome imposed on people, but then they added any amount that they want. They were thieves, robbers, backed by the full might and power of Rome. And so, as a Jewish person, he would have been despised in polite society. He would literally have been kicked out of the synagogue, considered a disgrace to his family, and his money was so tainted because it was thievery, he was not even allowed to be charitable and give to charitable causes. And what you see here is that Jesus calls not only the beautiful people, but also the social outcasts and puts them with each other in the same kingdom. Or think about personalities. There's Simon Peter, who's the most impetuous disciple that we meet in Scripture. He is constantly jumping into things without thinking, without looking, without considering them very much. Simon Peter. Then there's James and John. They're known as the sons of thunder. They take harshness and put an edge onto impetuosity. When people disrespect Jesus, they want to know, Jesus, would you... Would you like us to call down fire from heaven to wipe them all out? That's their solution to disrespect. Or there's Thomas. Thomas not only doubts the resurrection, he comes across as sort of the Eeyore of the group. It's kind of a resigned, depressive personality. And Jesus thinks it's going to be a great idea to take all of these guys and bring them together in the kingdom. Whichever dimension you use to think about this group, occupationally, politically, reputation, personality, they're incredibly diverse. It is not a group of people who would choose to come together because of shared interests, because of shared experiences, because of shared expectations, because of shared anything. The only thing that they share is that they were each called by Jesus. Jesus is the one unifier of this community. He is the one point to which they are all drawn, the one point to whom they all come. And yet as they come, they each retain their individual unique distinctiveness. They retain their own backgrounds, their own shaping experiences, their own personalities, their own outlook on life. 
And those unique differences don't disappear just because they come to Christ. They don't get flattened. Instead, we can clearly see those differences 2,000 years later, which tells you those differences were really obvious when they first got together. In other words, if you don't like difference, if you don't like diversity, you're not going to like being with Jesus. Because while he does call you to come first to him, he also simultaneously calls you into a community of people who are not like you. A community that will not always make you feel comfortable to be part of. That will not only reflect you and your interests, that will not only reflect your likes and your dislikes, your concerns, but it's a community that will retain its diversity, its differences, and it's a community that will call you to grow in your ability to live in it and to appreciate the very different people whom Jesus calls along with you. And that's because Jesus' Jesus's goal with the first 12 that he summons is not that they tolerate each other, you know, just suck it up and put up with each other. Instead, he's very clear, they are to love each other. Not love each other so they stop being different. Not put up with each other until they're all on the same page, so they all become the same person. But love each other with all their differences. In some of his last words to them before he goes to his death, he tells them in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So here is how all people, both those who are in his kingdom right now and those who are still outside of it for the moment, here is how all people will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. If we love one another, despite how different we are. If we genuinely care about each other. If we are putting each other's needs ahead of our own desires, ahead of our own comforts. If we're willing to do whatever each other needs. If we're willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of what a brother or sister needs even as Jesus will say, to the point of laying down our lives for each other. If we do that, that is how all people will know that we have been summoned by the king into his kingdom. If we love those whom the king has also summoned. If we love each other simply because he has summoned us. Now what does that mean for us here at Renewal Mainline? It means that we are first called by Jesus to come to him. You are not first called to a group that thinks or feels or acts or looks like you do. One that makes you feel comfortable. One where you perfectly fit in. Sure, there are people here who you are more like and who you will feel more comfortable with. People that you will have a greater affinity with. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that is not the foundational reason why you and I are here. This is not a social club. That is not what unifies us. And so we can't look for everyone to be just like us, to make us feel comfortable. In fact, if church only ever feels comfortable to you, 
if it doesn't challenge you, if it does not stretch you in your ability to love, then we might be guilty of calling people to something other than calling them to Jesus. Instead, we are here, renewal is here, because we first come to Jesus. He is our unifier. And in that respect, he's our only unifier. He's the one that brings us all together. We don't come to him and to something else. We come to him. And so when we are inviting other people to come to him, we don't put preconditions in front of them. We don't say, well, if you want to come to Jesus and be part of us, then you first have to think this way. You first have to have this political stance. You have to have this ethnicity. You have to come with this socioeconomic status. You have to have this educational background. You have to have gone to these kind of places, studied at these kind of schools, studied at any school, have this kind of occupation. You must have lived this kind of moral lifestyle, have these particular interests, these outlooks on life, these perspectives about the world. We don't put out there as preconditions any of that. It's not a precondition to repenting, to believing. Instead, what do we do? We invite people to come to Jesus to hear him for the chance that maybe he'll summon them just like he summoned us. We don't put preconditions on responding to Jesus, and we embrace every single person that Jesus summons. And we learn to appreciate each other with our differences. We learn how to say, if Jesus summoned you, then he wants you in his kingdom. And in the right sense of the word, that means you are needed. That means you are valuable. That means that you are important to what he is doing and important to him. And since you are needed and valuable, I have to learn to value you. I have to learn to look at you and say, because you are part of the kingdom that I am also part of, I need you. Even though we come from very different backgrounds and are completely different from each other. Renewal Main Line is a community that needs to continue to learn how to value all of those whom Jesus values, those that he desires to come to him. So let me put a very fine point on it now, and let me ask you, how are you doing at loving those who are not like you? How are you doing at intentionally building relationships within this community with people who are different from you. We can't love the rest of the world if we're not doing it here. How are you doing with learning to appreciate people who don't think like you think, who don't look like you look, who don't come from the same places that you come from, who don't know the same things that you do, who don't listen to the same things that you listen to? Do you find yourself moving toward different people, inviting them over to your home? spending time with them, getting to know them? Or is your dance card mostly filled with people who are just like you? Jesus took his dance card and filled it with 12 names of people who were completely different. And then because he's the king, he took each one of their dance cards and filled them out for them. 
and he put names on their dance cards of people that they probably would not have invited out to go have coffee, much less a dance. And he said, you know what, guys? We're now going to live with each other. Day in and day out, in close, intimate community, doing everything together for three-plus years. He put them into the same group and said, here are your new best friends. Let the implications of that start to settle in a little bit more. Let it blow your mind. Let's, let's think about Levi again. Not because he was any harder to love than any of the rest of them. But if you go back to chapter 2, you learn that Jesus first called him beside the same lake where he called Peter and the other fishermen. And I love the way that Pastor Dwight put this a couple of weeks ago as he unpacked it. That it's highly likely that Levi was the guy who taxed the, the fishermen on the fish that they caught. Levi personally sinned against them. He took from them what God had given to them. Can you imagine the look on their faces when Jesus summons Levi to himself along with them? Can you hear them thinking, no, <laughs> no, Jesus, no, not him. What are you doing? You're calling him? We have to be together with him? If they actually said that out loud, I think Jesus' response would have been something like, no, it's, it's actually a lot harder than that. I'm not calling you to be together with him. I'm calling you to love him. And I'm calling him to love you. Because, frankly, you're not any easier to love than he is. That's the hard work that Jesus has given the church to do, to love the people that he has put us with. And he summons us to do that because he's already taken the first step. He has loved each one of us first. Now, given our social climate, I need to say that most of this hard work is going to go unnoticed. It will not generate likes for you on social media if you love someone in this congregation who is completely different from you. Not going to happen. I cannot imagine that renewal will gain a national reputation as we learn to love each other well. We're not even going to have a regional reputation. Now, why would I say that? That's not what you want to hear. <laughs> you and I live in a country that loves being noticed, that feels more validated when more people recognize what we do. So why would I say then that we're probably not going to get noticed? It's not what Americans want to hear. It's because that's been true of Christ's church throughout the ages. You know almost nothing about hundreds of millions of your brothers and sisters, good, godly men and women who have done the hard work of loving the people that God put them in community with. You know nothing about them which makes complete sense when you think about the 12 apostles. Commentaries point out here that while we know some of what a couple of these guys were like, what we know is very little, and frankly, as the New Testament scholar Walter Wessel puts it, of six of them, we know practically nothing. Think about that. Fully half of these apostles, those, as Ephesians 2.20 puts it, who serve as the foundation for the church, those who Jesus looked at and promised in Luke 22 would also sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Those who were martyred for his sake, 
who gave their lives to build up and to extend the kingdom of God, we know nothing about half of them. I find that deeply encouraging. These guys did amazing things. We're going to see them in chapter 6, heal people, cast out demons. We learn in the book of Acts that their teaching turns the world upside down. That through them, Jesus changed the course of human history, and we know nothing about them. What does that tell you? It tells you that they did not love Jesus and his kingdom in order to make a name for themselves, in order to cement their place in history. They did not love each other because they needed other people to notice and recognize that that's what they were doing. It was enough for them that Jesus knew. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 is really important. It's always been important for the church. It's especially so in our celebrity culture, in our society that thinks it's not worth very much to do something until, unless lots of people see it and comment on it. Hebrews cha chapter 6 tells us that God is not unjust. It means God is just. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. And the love that you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. Why do we do this work? God will not forget. God remembers. He remembers what we do for him and for each other. That's our motivation for loving each other. He summoned us to himself, into his kingdom, into this incredibly diverse kingdom that he says, now learn how to love each other in your differences. That's point two. Before we move on to point three, what this kingdom is called to do, let me just remind us why this is possible, especially in light of how good our world is at not being together, at not drawing people together, at how it teaches us to separate, to draw lines between people into good and bad categories, rather than to unite as a human race. And let me also talk, encourage us, in light of our own inclinations, to move toward people that we're a little more comfortable with than those who are different from ourselves. What is it that gives us hope that we can actually carry out what Jesus has called us into? Like everything in the Christian life, it always goes back to what? It goes back to the gospel. It goes back to what Jesus has already done, because what Jesus has done creates a new reality in which we now live. And so when we start to feel hopeless, when we start to do the hard work of love and it starts to feel very difficult, when we start to say, this feels like a great ideal, but it's completely unrealistic, you have to go back to the gospel. You have to go back to a place like Ephesians chapter 2. We read there in verse 14 that Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And the us there is Jews and Gentiles, historically people who were at odds with each other. Jesus has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, this dividing wall that kept us apart. How do you do that? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And he did it for a purpose, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What do we do when we start to feel overwhelmed? We remind ourselves that among Christians, that within the church, Jesus has already broken down the dividing wall of hostility, this barrier between people that fuels hatred, this law of commandments that people use to judge each other based on how good or how not good each other are doing. That barrier is what? It's now gone. It does not exist. Instead, Jesus has reconciled all of us to God in the same exact way. He did that work in his body on the cross. And in bringing all of us to God in the same way, he has united all of us in one body. He's broken down the barrier between us and God, and at the same moment broken down the barrier that we would put between us and each other. That means that when you keep yourself separate from others because of your differences, you deny the truth of the gospel. You deny what Jesus himself has done, and you refuse to enter into the truth that there is now only one new humanity, one new Israel with an incredible amount of diversity, but one new Israel that all of us now share. And so what are we doing now in the church? We are trying to live out the reality of the reconciliation that Jesus already won for us. Now, clearly, that doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> I can't imagine how hard it was for the fishermen and the tax collector to deal with their past and their past hatred of each other. You realize that probably took a couple conversations, probably a lot of conversations. It certainly was not easy for Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament to learn to love each other. Read the book of Acts, you see that very clearly. It wasn't easy, but now it's possible. Possible because the hatred that they once had for each other was paid for. Paid for by the king who called them to be together. And it's out of that same reality that he already won 2,000 years ago that we now take seriously our part in his kingdom while the kingdom is still here on this earth. Which brings us to point three. We are called together in all of our glorious diversity for a purpose. What is that purpose? I'm gonna go through three things very quickly. I am aware of what time it is. Number one, first, he calls us, verse 14, so that we might be with him. That's the first and the greatest thing that he could offer us. The chance to be reconnected with our God. And so the 12 are first just to be with him to live with him, travel with him, learn from him, talk with him, share his life with him, be close with him. Your number one highest priority of being Jesus's disciple is just to relate to him. There are things that we do to serve him as members of his kingdom, but he calls us first to himself before he calls us to do anything. That means if you're not spending time with him, you're missing the point of what he's called you into. If you're not spending time with him, listening to him in scripture, talking to him in prayer, you're missing the point. And you're missing out on what he's offering you. I'm going to lean into this 
a little bit here. This is, I think, a timely word for us as we come out of the pandemic, because a lot of us have learned some bad habits over this past year. I count myself as one of these bad habit learners. We've learned to spend more time on our phones than we do with Jesus. More time on social media, more time in the news, and we have allowed that time to shape how we think. We are very schooled in current events, but we've forgotten that we've been called into a completely different kingdom with a different viewpoint and a different way to think than any of the other kingdoms of this world. Kingdoms that we spend an awful lot of time learning from. And so some of us are gonna have to fight this pretty hard now. And we're gonna have to hear Jesus summon us one more time to be with him as our highest calling it's a calling, actually, that meets our need. I was talking to a friend earlier this week, and she said, you know, I really struggle to understand Scripture. It doesn't always make a lot of sense to me. I don't think she's the only person who feels like that. Many of us have given ourselves to our professions. We've studied them for years. We know them inside and out. But we have put far less energy into knowing the heart and mind of God this one who calls us, this one who we will be with for eternity long after we've retired from our occupations. We've put less time into knowing him, and so when we come to Scripture, it doesn't always make as much sense as we wish it did. Now, what do we do with that? Just throw up our hands and say, well, I, I guess I'll never really get it. Better leave Scripture to the experts. Or you can feel guilty and ashamed. You can feel like, man, I better read my Bible again so Bill doesn't make me feel bad on Sunday mornings. If you're only reading Scripture to avoid feeling bad, you're still not going to understand it. Because the point of Scripture is not to make you feel good. The point of Scripture is to connect you with Jesus. So what do you do? You go back to him one more time, and you remind yourself, Jesus summoned me to be with him. That's his desire, that I would understand him and his heart. So as I am with him, I will slowly start to understand scripture better. That's his purpose in calling me to him. Now let me offer you a resource here that I think would be helpful, if especially if you're struggling to understand scripture. I find this resource very helpful. I enjoy this one. Young people, I'm talking especially here to you, college students, high school students, teens, preteens, I think this applies to you as well. Older folks, you'll benefit, but young people, you have the summer in front of you. This is prime time to spend with Jesus and learn his heart and mind. There's an online resource that I think will help you to get the big picture of what God is all about. It's called The Bible Project. You can find them at www.bibleproject.com. What do they do? They make these really short videos. Narrator talks, somebody else does this cool graphic drawing that illustrates what they're saying. It's a little bit like a graphic novel, not violent. The content is clear. They're gospel-centered. They're engaging to watch. Now, some of these videos will unpack theological terms that are useful, but these guys have also done outlines of every book in the Bible, and they hit the highlights telling you the overall flow and intention of the Bible. They're mostly all in the eight to nine minute range, which means that they didn't ask me to help with the transcripts. You can laugh at that, please. 
They've now all finished all of the books in the Bible. And if you started now and you watched one book a day, 66 books in the Bible, you would just about finish before school started and you'd have a, an overview of what the Bible is trying to communicate. And so I want to challenge you. I'm speaking very personally. I want to challenge you. Go home today, maybe tomorrow at the latest if you already have plans. I want you to look at the one that they did on the book of Mark. That's the book that we're going through on Sunday morning. Watch that one and see what you think. Parents, you should watch it too so that you know what your kids are watching. If you're still not sure after that whether you want to watch the rest of them, let me suggest you watch a second one called New Testament Overview. Again, it's an eight-minute video that unpacks the whole scope and the whole point of the New Testament. Seriously, that is shorter than most of the games that you're going to play today. How do you find these videos? You go to www.bibleproject.com and you click on the first tab at the top. It will say watch. It's a pretty intuitive website. You click on that and you'll scroll down to the pull-down menu to about the middle and you find this link that says book overviews. Click there and then obviously New Testament and click the book of Mark. www.bibleproject.com Watch book overviews. New Testament Mark. If you forget, you can play back the YouTube video of the sermon, or you can reach out to me through the webpage, renewalmainline.org. I'll be glad to walk you through it. The bottom line here, and I'm speaking to all of us right now, I don't care how you do it, but you need time with Jesus. You can't do without that. That's why he summoned you. You will be no good to the kingdom without that time. Our understanding as a church of God's heart and mind, that has to continue to increase if we are going to address the issues in our larger society, if we're going to have anything to say to them, if we have any way of calling them to Christ. And that's the second part of our purpose here on earth. Jesus called these 12 to be with him and that he might then send them out to preach. So having been with him, they now have the same responsibility that he has to do what he's been doing to preach, to publicly proclaim the things that they've learned from him, to take his message, to repent and believe, and communicate it to the people around them. What's that look like? One of our friends here at Renewal has been slowly, quietly building relationships with her co-workers. Relationships where they know that she loves Jesus, and they know that she loves them, that she is safe to be with. A couple weeks ago, she had a great opportunity. She went to dinner with several of them, and they started asking her questions about why do you believe in God? How do you believe in God? And they start unpacking some of the faith struggles that they themselves have. She felt a little bit out of her depth, but it was a very good conversation. They were open with each other. It seems like this might actually lead to that some kind of looking at Scripture with her. What is she doing? She's proclaiming the message of Jesus to people in a form that makes sense to them. That's what disciples do after they've spent time with Jesus. This is the positive part of our purpose. This is what we stand for, proclaiming the message of Christ. He also gives us something that we stand against, and that's the third part of our purpose. He gave the apostles authority to cast out demons. Now, that was not something that many disciples did even when Jesus was alive. This is a distinct thing that the apostles themselves did. They cast out demons. 
But when Jesus gives them that authority, what is he doing? He's drawing a very clear line between his kingdom and the kingdom of darkness. And he's calling his people to challenge the kingdom of darkness. The way each disciple does that is different, just as each disciple is different. We don't all challenge the same things in the same way. But each of us is called to challenge the kingdom of darkness that opposes our king. This is what the church is all about. This is the mission of the church. This is what Jesus' kingdom is all about. We are called to be with Christ together, speaking for him, standing against everything that opposes him. If we are not doing this, we're not actually responding to his call, to his summons. We are not entering into his kingdom or building it up or seeing his kingdom extend. Instead, we've replaced the, his idea of his kingdom with one of our own. Now, that might be a very satisfying kingdom to us. It might enjoy a sense of community, have a sense of purpose. It may even have some sustainability over the short run. But we will not be the new Israel that the king intends to spread across the globe. And we will find ourselves getting in the way of what he's doing. And when all of this starts to feel overwhelming and crushing and way too much, like it's too lofty a goal, that churches just don't live like this, that this calling is too far above any of us, that it's just too hard, take your eyes off yourself and look back to Jesus one more time. He did not leave heaven and earth for the possibility of bringing his kingdom. He left heaven, came to earth for the certainty of bringing it. He did not go to the cross to maybe reconcile you to God and perhaps reconcile you to others in his kingdom. He did those things to make his kingdom a reality, both in your life and in the life of his church. So when you feel like it's too hard and you're overwhelmed, look again to him. Have greater confidence in his ability to bring his kingdom into your life, to bring you into it then you have confidence in your ability to thwart him. Trust him to make his kingdom a reality in your life. Ask him to do that. Ask him, and that's a sign of what? That he's already summoned you, that this is what you already want. Ask him, and he will make it a reality in your life because he has summoned you. And then you, in turn, will help make the kingdom a reality in the life of renewal. Lord Jesus, thank you. Lord, this is not a little salvation, not a little dealing with our sins so that we can just continue on with life as usual. Lord, you have completely turned the world upside down and you've brought us into that upside down kingdom. You've given us a place in it. Lord, I pray that we would embrace your call with everything that we have. Lord, that you would make it a reality in our life and in the life of this church, in Jesus' name. Amen.